Welcome to the Ohio District UPCI Podcast. The following message is titled, When the Chalk Drops, and was spoken by Devin Akers at the Ohio District Senior High Camp. We hope and pray this message blesses your life. For more information about the Ohio District, visit us at ohiodistrict.com. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. As you turn there, I'm going to tell you one reason I love preaching to students. And that's because students, man, they're at that stage in life where um, everything they're doing, you know, it's they're a little bit self-conscious, self-conscious, I can't say it, but that's what they are. They're self-conscious and like they're looking in the mirrors a lot. And anybody knows, like if you see a good mirror, like while you're walking, you're like, whoa, wait a second. Let me just, let me just stop right here real quick, see what's up. So I was preaching a youth rally not too long ago and... Uh, this is a true story, Brother Chavis, true story. Uh, we, the office that I was sitting in preparing for the youth rally was the pastor's office, and it was up these stairs and to the right, uh, and there was this big office, and I was like sitting in the corner. The door was open to the office. You could not see me, but I could see the people walking by, just where I was sitting at. And so um, there was a young man, he's about 14, 15 years old, first night, running media. And man, he was like stoked. I mean, it was youth rally. He was like in a three-piece suit, had a tie on, had his hair slicked back. This is this is true. And and it was his first night running media. And so he's got the like first night jitters. I mean, it's youth rally. He's pumped. I, I, I'm sitting in the corner of the office and I hear him run up the stairs and then he gets at the top. Well, there's a mirror at the top of the stairs. You go left to the media booth and right is the office. <clears throat> so he sees himself in the mirror. He cannot see me. I can see him. True story. This is why I love students. He stops and he looks in the mirror and he goes, no lie, two finger guns, hot stereo. And he, I don't know what hot stereo, but he knew he looked good. And let me tell you something. Sometimes you just got to find a good mirror and you got to do two finger guns and you got to be like, hot stereo, looking good tonight. Hot stereo, you guys are looking good this morning. Come on, somebody look over at your neighbor, give them two finger guns and say, hot stereo, baby, you're looking good. Yeah, there it is. (laughs) Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. Come on, it's time to get spiritual. We're at church. Quit messing around, people. Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. Very familiar verse in Scripture. We've got the three Hebrew boys. This is the moment that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, becomes angry. And the Bible says in Daniel chapter 3, verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if ye be ready, that at what time you hear, and I like how King Nebuchadnezzar gets super detailed. He's like, I'm going to name every instrument. At the time that you hear the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut. Any sackbut players in here? Seriously? I've never had anybody raise their hand and actually admit that they played the sack, but that's the weirdest instrument I've ever heard. How about the psaltery? Anybody play the psaltery? 
and the dulcimer. So, and all kinds of music with a K. Never even seen music spelled with a K, but it's spelled with a K here. If when you hear all of that, you do not fall down and worship the image which I have made, well, but if you worship not, you shall be cast that same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us out of the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, praise God. That's powerful. I know, I know. We were all about to get pumped up. But this is my favorite part. But if not, but if he doesn't, if he doesn't show up, if we are burnt alive, if we're ashes by the end of the day, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And I think that's where we see the real faith. For a few moments this morning, and I feel the Holy Ghost here, God's going to speak to somebody. I want to preach on this topic. When the chalk drops. When the chalk drops. Put your Bibles down, lift your voices, let's pray one more time. Jesus, we love you. We feel you in this place. God, your spirit is so real and so obviously in front of us. God, thank you for the word that was ministered last night by Brother Jackson and in the state of mind that we are still in, God. The reality of eternity is before us, God. And Lord, thank you, Jesus, for sending somebody to preach to us, God, and get us in the right frame of mind and remember that it matters. And this morning, I pray that you would continue to build a foundation upon your word. And that, Lord, as we build throughout this week, that, God, freedom and life and, God, your calling would be in this place. And that this morning, God, I feel it in my spirit. You're calling a church planner, God, to step up. You're calling a future missionary to step up. You're calling a soul winner, God. You're calling somebody to work in your kingdom. I speak that in the name of Jesus. Clap your hands one more time. Give God praise. And you may be seated. All right, disclaimer time. For the next few moments until I finish this story, do not clap. Do not amen, do not run the aisles, do not do backflips, do not hang from the chandeliers that do not exist. If you do, you just might end up, I don't know, just don't. Not the whole sermon though, everybody calm down, just for this story. I'm going to read it verbatim. This is a true story of something that happened just a few years ago at the University of Southern California. There was a professor of philosophy there who was a deeply committed atheist. His primary goal for one of the required classes was to spend the entire semester attempting to prove that God could not exist. His students were always afraid to argue with him because of his impeccable logic. For 20 years he had taught the class and no one had ever had the courage to go against him. Sure, some had argued at times, but no one had ever really stepped up to the plate to speak against his point of view. You'll see what I mean. Nobody would go against him because he had a reputation. At the end of every semester on the last day, 
he would say to his class of 300 or more students, if there's anyone who still believes in Jesus, stand up. In 20 years, no one had ever stood up. They knew what he was going to do next. He would say, because anyone who does believe in God is a fool. If God existed, he could stop this piece of chalk from hitting the ground and breaking. Such a simple task to prove that he is God, and yet he cannot do it. And every year he would drop the chalk onto the floor of the classroom and it would shatter into a hundred pieces. The students could do nothing but stop and stare. Most of the students were convinced that God could not exist. Certainly a number of Christians had slipped through in and out over the past 20 years, but they'd been too afraid to actually stand up for what they believe. Well, a few years ago, there was a freshman who happened to get enrolled in the class, and he was a Christian. He had heard the stories of the professor. He had to take the class because it was one of his required classes for his major, but he was afraid. So for three months that semester, he prayed every morning that he would have the courage to stand up no matter what the professor said or what the class thought. Don't forget, don't amen. Nothing they said or did could ever shatter his faith, he hoped. Finally, the day came. The professor said, if there's anyone who still believes in God, stand up. The professor in the class of 300 people looked in shock as the students stood up in the back of the classroom. The professor shouted, you fool, if God existed, he could keep this piece of chalk from breaking when it hits the ground. He proceeded to drop the chalk. But as he did, it slipped out of his fingers, off of his shirt cuff, onto the pleats of his pants, rolled down his leg, and then off his shoe. And as it hit the ground, it simply rolled away unbroken. The professor's jaw dropped as he stared at the class. He looked up at the young man and then ran out of the lecture hall. The young man who had stood up proceeded to walk in front of the classroom and share his faith in Jesus for the next half hour. 300 students stayed and listened as he told them of God's love for them and the power of Jesus Christ. Wow. That is such a good story. That's like one of those stories that your grandma tags you in on Facebook. It's like, you need to read this. I don't even get on Facebook anymore, Grammy, because of you. <laughs> yeah, it's a great story. So good. There's only one issue with this great story that you may have got in your email box or you may have seen on your Facebook wall or you may have read somewhere. The only issue with this story is it's completely untrue. Wow, it's so fun to read. I got a little chill down my backbone. The only problem is it's hogwash, it's junk, it's mess, it never happened. This is a fake story. But we as Christians love to propagate this and retweet this and repost this and send it to each other. And maybe today you're looking and thinking, wow, this is the worst start of a sermon I've ever heard in my life. Because most likely in actuality, what would have happened in that moment? 
If it were a real scenario, let me tell you what would have happened. The Christian would have stood up in the back of the classroom and tried to go head-to-head with the professor. The professor would have then dropped the chalk, like always, and it probably would have shattered into a hundred or a thousand pieces. And then the impressionable students in the classroom would have looked back at the Christian young man and looked back at the professor and sided with the professor. And the Christian would have been standing there left in the wake in the ruin of embarrassment or humiliation. And maybe you find me faithless this morning since I presented it that way. But the question I've come to ask you is this. Does it take more faith to believe and profess the name of Jesus when the chalk is unbroken or when it shatters into a thousand pieces? Because I think we all know the answer. Because in life, we're always faced with moments where the chalk breaks, when the chalk drops, when it hits the ground, when adversity feels like it has won, when the people around us are speaking so against us and it feels like we're outnumbered, we're not the majority, we're the minority. It feels like we step on to the college campus and nobody believes what we believe or we walk through the halls of our public high school and we get ridiculed by our science teacher or by one of the teachers in our... In our in a, anybody ever actually been been argued against by a, a teacher? I've had that happen in high school where they, they actually came against me and, and tried to embarrass me in front of my class. Anybody ever been sitting there when you can kind of feel... The, the blood rushes to the back of your neck and you start to feel your face flush a little bit because you realize you're being pinned out, pointed out in front of everybody and they're asking you what you believe and then you go to articulate what you believe and it just feels like it doesn't come out the way that you want it to in the group that you're with and then you walk away thinking, what's wrong with me? Why, do, why, why, didn't I, why couldn't I just speak it? Why couldn't I just, just say it? Why is it that, that I felt the pressure and it felt like I buckled a little bit? Do I even really believe this? Is it even really worth going through the ridicule and, and facing the opposition? I've come to ask you this morning if you've ever been in that place. When does it take more faith? You know, just like me, that if you've ever been left in the, the ruin and the embarrassment of, of having to speak up for what you believe and nobody responded to it, it's in that moment that you find out whether or not you really have faith. It's in that moment that your faith is really tested when nobody's converted, when nobody says amen, when nobody steps up and says, I think I agree with you. It's in the moments of opposition that our faith is truly tried. And I've come to let you know this morning, you may be standing in a place of opposition or about to walk onto a college campus that doesn't believe what you believe, but you've got to have a made up mind right now because the world's going to throw everything thing that it can throw at you but you've got to have it made up in your mind whether I convert the entire school or nobody I believe what I believe it's established in my spirit I've got a made up mind I've already put my foot down I've already made it up in my spirit and my heart that this is the word of God and it doesn't change I don't believe this because my mama believes it. I don't believe this because it's what my daddy preaches. I've got a made-up mind. And if my whole family backslides tomorrow, I'm not going anywhere. I've got a faith that's greater. 
Let me tell you something. This better go beyond just a family heritage. This better go beyond just a last name. This better go beyond convenience because as soon as this isn't convenient, you're going to find out whether or not you have faith. But you've got to be willing to stand and look at Nebuchadnezzar and say, hey, God's going to show up. But even if he doesn't, I've got a made-up mind that I'm going to stand my ground. I'll die for this. You can put me in the grave. You can put me in the fire. But I'll die for this. Come on, somebody. You better believe this apostolic doctrine in more than just namesake. You better have it in your spirit and in your mind for yourself. It's not good enough to just hear it preached from a pulpit. You need to get into the Word of God and read it for yourself. You need to get into the Word of God and fall in love with the Scripture. Fall in love with the book and begin to let it feed you. Because in the moment of adversity, and it will come, that's what you're going to rely on, is that you've already made up your mind. Your spirit's already been established. You may be seated. When the chalk hits the ground is when you've got to make a decision. (laughs) When everybody around you says, I don't believe it anymore. Whenever the people that you relied on the most all of a sudden end up being the people that had no foundation underneath them. When ministry disappoints you, when church disappoints you, when friends disappoint you, when people disappoint you, when you're in an atmosphere you've never been in before, facing opposition that you've never faced, it's in those moments when the chalk drops, shatters into a thousand pieces, but you still got to stand your ground. No, no, no. It's not a Facebook-worthy post. It's not rainbows. It's not cotton candy. It's a tough moment. It's embarrassment. It's frustration. It's a hardship. It's a trial. It's a tribulation. But in the middle of the fire. You've already got a caveat in your mind that Lord, I believe this but even if you don't show up and you don't fight for me and I've got to endure it till the end and I get bumped, bruised and broken, I still believe it. Let me tell you something. I planted a church 10 months ago. I had to have a made-up mind. It's not convenient to stand in a community where the majority of people stand in stark opposition to what you believe and preach Jesus' name baptism, preach the infilling of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues, Speak out, preach outward holiness and inward holiness as well. But I've already got a made-up mind. I don't care if a 1,000 people walk out tomorrow. I don't care how many show up and then leave. I've got got to have it established. Lord, I'd rather have a church of 25 believers than a thousand who don't know the truth. I'm not in this to impress people. I'm not in this to have the biggest and the greatest. I'm in this to be true to the word of God and God himself. Forget popularity. Forget whether or not people like me. Forget whether or not it's accepted by society. I've got a made-up mind that the Word of God is what I'm going to stand on above anything else. Man, I feel the Holy Ghost here. It's no wonder we're getting ripped up our freshman year of college. It's no wonder the statistics are disgusting about how many people leave their senior year of high school and end up backsliding when they get onto a college campus. It's because they're not ready. It's because they thought their faith was founded in a youth camp. It's because they thought their faith was founded in a pastor. It's because they didn't have it for themselves. But before you ever step out, before you ever go into that environment, before you ever go into opposition, you better stand on the word of God right now.
Come on, somebody. You better fall in love with it. I've got to hurry. This was the exact scenario of Babylon. You see, these three Hebrew boys lived through the decimation of Israel. Israel was the perfect home. Israel was the perfect place. Israel was incubated. They lived in Jerusalem. That was the church, y'all. Everybody went to church in Jerusalem. Everybody was Jewish in Jerusalem. Everybody ate the same things and dressed the same way in Jerusalem. But then Nebuchadnezzar came in and pummeled all of their culture, killed their parents, took them captive, and drugged them to a place called Babylon. That's where they're standing. They're standing in the middle of opposition. They're standing in the middle of a city that they've never been in, that they weren't born and raised in. They're standing in Babylon. And I want you to understand that Babylon, we think of Babylon, it's like we think of this gross place with a dark cloud over it. That's the devil's city and Jerusalem's the Lord's city. But guess what? That's not really the truth. Babylon was the most technologically advanced city in the world. Babylon had stuff Jerusalem did not have. Babylon was the place where Nebuchadnezzar was the king and they were taken captive to go to. That's why they were standing in this situation. Once they got to Babylon, I'm sure they thought, man, this is going to be the worst place we've ever been. This is going to be awful. Then they roll up on it and they're like, man, we ain't got that back in Jerusalem. Man, that's pretty nice. And instead of Nebuchadnezzar, I want you to hear me right now. History tells us this, that Nebuchadnezzar, the king that pummeled Jerusalem and then took captive all of the Hebrew children, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he did not kill them. This was different. Normally when you take a city, you just kill everybody. But Nebuchadnezzar was smarter than that. See, see, he had a plan. And history tells us that he took out the old generation, but he kept the young generation. Because Nebuchadnezzar understood that in the young generation, there was talent. There was gifts. There were people that could contribute to his kingdom. So rather than killing them, he made a decision. A strategic decision. I'm going to employ and use these young people in my kingdom. And so can you imagine rolling up to this place called Babylon? Leaving the incubation and and the... The, the wonderful Jerusalem where everybody did the same thing, and you're a Hebrew child, you've been raised in, in the admonition of the Lord and, and the reverence, and you think, oh God, we're going to hate Babylon. And then you roll up and you see it and you think, my God, that's beautiful. Man, I've never seen buildings that big. I, I've never seen anything like that. Look at this technology. Look at this power. Look at, look at their able government. Look at how well they work together. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, you like that? Well, good, because I want to use you in all of this. Man, I want you to be a part of this because, shoot, you got talent. Man, look how gifted you are. Look, look you could use this in, in my kingdom. Girl, you can sing. Man, you've been singing over there in that little building for a while, but, but, but let me tell you something, your voice is bigger than that. Oh, man, look, you got talent. Let me tell you something. That leadership ability that you've got, you could lead a few people doing the doctrine that you have, but imagine if you just changed a few things. Oh, think about the thousands of people that would just come through the doors of your church. See, you got ability. Oh, man, they've just been holding you down. They've not been letting you be who you should be. Come over to my kingdom and let me show you how to really use your gifts, how to really use your talent. That's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are. They're being employed 
in, in Babylon's government. Same thing with Daniel in the lion's den. He's in that same time period. And Nebuchadnezzar brings them in. And what we find is this. I want you to hear me. History tells us that the first thing he does is he says, come sit at my table. Come eat with me. Come, come, come and commune with me. Nebuchadnezzar was not stupid. He understood how to create a sense of community, even though he had just destroyed their home, taken their parents captive or killed them. Now he's saying, why don't you just sit here with me, eat from my table, do what I do. Put his arm around them and said, listen, everybody told you I was the enemy, but do I feel like the enemy right now? Feels like you're making more money than you've ever made. Seems like to me you're, you're doing better than you've ever done. Yeah, no, no, everybody told you that if you ever went to Babylon, it would be the worst place. You would have to do the worst things. But do you feel bad right now? No, no, no. You feel good, don't you? You feel good sitting by me. Oh, man, it gets warm. It gets comfortable. And for, so this goes on for years. Next thing they do, hear me, is Nebuchadnezzar puts them through an education system that is four years long. And so for four years, they're educated in a new language, in a new culture, because Nebuchadnezzar knows that if I can get into your mind and teach you my ways and teach you the ways of Babylon, you'll learn to love it. Oh yeah, for a while, you'll sit at my table and you'll push the plate back and say, no, 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 we don't eat those things. We're, we're Jewish. We're God's people. But give it a few years. And all of a sudden, the smell of that, that, that meat, the smell of my table, you'll start to smell it. You'll start to get comfortable with me. And just give it a few years. I'm willing to invest in you. And you'll inch closer and closer and closer and closer until finally you compromise. And that's exactly where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. That the majority of the Israelites that had been taken from Jerusalem to Babylon had already compromised. The generation that they grew up with had already bowed their knee. And it's proven whenever Nebuchadnezzar finally gets to a place where he says, you either serve me or you serve no one. And he fashions an image and he puts it before them and he looks at everybody and he says, bow your knee. And you know the Bible says that Everyone bowed, that's including the generation that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were with. They all bowed their knees. They'd all compromised. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had something in them that was established that said, we'll sit at your table. We may be in this culture. We may be in this world, but we're not of this world. We may be able to, to sit there and listen to you talk. But when it comes down to it and you ask us who we're going to worship, <laughs> we've already got a made-up mind that we may be in Babylon, but we're going to worship the God of Israel. You can change my location, but you can't change my beliefs. You can put me in a new environment, but you can't shake my conviction. You can put me in a place where you try to indoctrinate me, but I've already got a made-up mind. I've already got it established in my spirit. And what God needs in this generation are some people that can stand in opposition, are some people that will usher in revival because they've got conviction. Be and I feel the Holy Ghost. Young people, you can stand. You can make it through college. You can win your friends. You can change your generation. You can do it. You've got something inside of you that's greater than the world. You've got something inside of you. It's the Holy Spirit of God, and it'll work and fight for you. But you've got to remember it for yourself. Clap your hands if you believe it.
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not even their names. They were renamed by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to forget everything about Israel. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to forget everything about Jerusalem and this God, Jehovah. So he changed their names. This was their original names. Hananiah means the Lord has been good to me. Shadrach means inspiration of the sun. What a difference. Mishael means he who comes from God. Meshach was the new name, and that means belongs to the goddess Shishak. Azariah, the Lord is my helper. Abednego, the servant of Nago. When you see what they renamed them to, what Nebuchadnezzar changed their names to, what you find is this, that all three of the names trace back to a God, little g, of an environmental peace, whether it's the sun, the wind, the earth, fire, whatever it is. But Nebuchadnezzar was trying to drill something into them. That look, you showed up thinking that you were inspired by God, Jehovah, but really all you are is a product of your environment. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to change your name. The Lord's been good to me. The Lord is my helper. Jehovah is my... Forget all that. You're a production of the sun. You're a production of the moon. You're just a you're just a product of your environment. Do you understand? I, I hope you're picking up on this, and I know you are because I realize that you're extremely intelligent people, and that was not sarcasm. I know everybody's like, is he joking with us right now? No, I, 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 it's obvious that, that this generation is an intelligent generation, so I know you're picking up. The devil's tactics have not changed. Anybody notice that? That he's still trying to change identity, that he's still trying to indoctrinate, that he's still trying to impose his beliefs on us and pervert the original will of God, even if it's just a small perversion, if he can just get us to sidestep the doctrine, if he can just get us to sidestep, and that's what he's doing. He's pushing something into them that says, you think you're inspired by God? You think, you think Mishael is your name? No, no, Meshach is your name. You, you, think, you think that the Lord is your helper? No, no, no. You're just a production of the goddess Shishak. He was pushing something into them to try to get them to change their mind about whose they were. Do you, I want you to hear me right now. There is a desire for authenticity in every human being. You hear me right now. This is important. I was driving down the road not too long ago, and I caught the tail end of a news story that was very old. It was late at night, but it was so powerful. There's a guy named John Myatt. He's a professional art forger. What does that mean? That means that he would take things like uh, Rembrandts and, and, and Picassos and Da Vinci pictures and he would repaint them and change them so, and then resell them. And, and so what that means is he was so good at forging art that he could sell his fake art as undiscovered Da Vinci paintings for thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Well, they caught up to him. He ended up going to prison. You know, That's why I heard the story. If they didn't, no one would know. They caught up to him, they threw him in prison. But that's not actually what the news story was about. The news story was about this. If you like a painting, and you pay thousands and thousands of dollars, why does it matter who painted it? Right? Why, why should it matter to you? Because science has showed us that human beings are the only ones who have an innate desire for authenticity. So what they believe about something is tied to the story behind it. They figured it out like this. They would take seven and eight-year-olds and they would put them in a classroom and they would take pictures and they would draw on these pictures. 
I wish I had it right now. I could draw a beautiful picture for you. They would take these crayons and they would just scribble, 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 and they would hand it to that eight-year-old. Can I see this? Can I see this? Can I ruin this? Oh, yeah, this is beautiful, man. Thank you so much. We actually timed that illustration before service. This was not random. I'm just kidding. It was random. That's a bunch of scribble. That means nothing. That's, that's my artwork. Actually, that's as good as it gets, truly. They would take that picture and they would hand it to the seven or eight-year-old. And then they would say one of two things. The first thing they would tell them is, oh, listen, the reason I put that circle there is because it's like your eyes. It reminds me of your eyes. And, and the reason we chose the color purple is because the color purple. And they would tell them this grand, beautiful story about the scribbles on the paper. By the time it was said and done, the child was so attached to the scribbles that they would not throw it away. They would hold it. They would keep it. It was just a bunch of scribbles, but because of the story, they couldn't let go of it. They would take that same group, age group, they would take the same pictures, give it to them, and say, oh yeah, we just, we just spilled some paint on it. We, we accidentally just dropped some crayons. That same age group would then take the same pictures, discard them, throw them away, get rid of them. It was the same picture. It looked the same. But because the origin story was different, it created value. And what you've got to understand, what you believe about yourself will define how valuable you think you are. And what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do is tell them, you don't have any inspiration. You're nothing. You're just a bunch of scribbles. What the world is trying to tell this generation is you're just a random production. You're just the perfect mix of gases and molecules that created a primordial soup, that created a tadpole, that created a monkey, that created you. That's the theory of evolution. That you don't have a divine creator. You don't have a God that loves you. You don't have someone that's numbered the very hair on your head. You don't have somebody that knew your name before you were ever born. You don't have somebody that has inspired and breathed life into you and has a calling on you. All you are is a production. All you are is just a bunch of genes that got put together and those genes are what dictate you. And whether or not you have addictions probably go back to whether or not your dad had an addiction or your mama had an addiction. And so you're just bound to addiction. You were born a homosexual. You don't have a choice. You see, the tactic doesn't change. It stays the same. Nebuchadnezzar was trying to get them to believe, you don't have any divine inspiration because if I can pull away the divine inspiration and the origin story from you, if you can just detach yourself from your creator, you'll file in and you'll serve me and you'll worship me because what's the difference? If you're not inspired, but let me tell you something. Every single young person, man, I feel the Holy Ghost, is inspired by God this morning. And the world has tried to devalue you. The world has tried to tell you that you're worthless. Culture has tried to tell you that you might as well just throw in the towel. You don't have a reason for living. But the Word of God says the very opposite. You are called according to His purpose. You've got a reason for living. You're not an accident. I don't care what your mom and dad have said about you. I don't care what your heritage may be. You may be a first generation apostolic. You may be a fifth generation apostolic. But your value is defined by your origin. And God breathed life into you before you were ever born. He knew your name. You have power. You have destiny. 
Come on. Don't you serve the enemy. Don't you give up your destiny. Don't you throw in the towel. It's worth serving God. It's worth living for him. It's worth it. He's got something great for you. He's got power for you. He's got an anointing on your life. Man, I feel the Holy Ghost here right now. Somebody ought to rejoice. Somebody ought to praise God. Somebody ought to lift him up right now. I, I come against every lie of the enemy. I come against the spirit of suicide. I come against self-harm. I come against the idea that we don't have an anointing or a future. I speak life into this place right now. In the name of Jesus, I speak life into this place right now. Our futures are great, God. You're calling a church planner. You're calling a missionary. You're calling somebody to step into the future. I speak that in the name of Jesus right now all over this place. I feel the Holy Ghost here right now. God's got a call for you. God, you've got a reason for living. It's not by accident. This is on purpose. You've got a destiny. Why do you think right now there is suicide that is plaguing this generation? Why do you think in the last 15 years it has spiked by 25 to 35%? It's because there is a world and a culture that is indoctrinating people with the idea that you have no reason for living. But the voice of God is crying out to a generation the very opposite. That I called you by name. That you do have a purpose. I speak against the spirit of condemnation that would come against this generation and say it's not worth it, that you can't make it, you can make it, you can stand, you can have faith in this hour. And God's going to use you to change this world. And that concludes this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. And for those of you on iTunes, leave us a good rating. Thank you for listening to the Ohio District Podcast.